some really funny thinking goes on around the criminal justice um, domain. So people are kind of like, well, if anyone fails, then we should just give up completely. You know, if it, if it doesn't work for everybody, if it isn't a silver bullet, then let's go back to what we do anyway, which is just to be harsh and punitive, which we know doesn't work for anyone. You know, the average effect, for example, of imprisonment on its own on recidivism is 0% at best. It may, in fact, increase risk. So we're working already, when we're working with prisoners, we're working against that baseline. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. This episode of Better Thinking, I'm talking with Professor Polishek, and she is an incredible human being who's put so much work into treating or looking at the, 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 the science, the research around treating psychopathology, um, and particularly with regards to separating that from criminal behavior. Mind-boggling stuff. The research out there, at least what I was told when I went to university was that, you know, you can't go out and treat uh, psychopathology. And in actual fact, uh, Professor Polishek has got something different to say. Amazing woman, amazing research, and I hope uh, you know you enjoy this as much as I did interviewing it. I wish we had more people like her, you know, providing this sort of research and evidence-based stuff that that goes out and informs policy. You're definitely going to love this one, so enjoy. Welcome back to Better Thinking. Today's guest is Devon Polishek, and I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Uh, she's a professor of psychology and of security um, and crime science. Uh, welcome to the show. It's so fascinating to uh, have you to, to discuss, you know, psychopathy and, and treatment of, of you know, um, people who have been maybe in the system, so to speak, for, for some time. So thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Nish, for the opportunity to be here to talk about these uh, really interesting topics. Devin, tell me about how you got into this space. There's not there's not many, uh, you know, psychologists and, and, and people in the field that, uh, you know, get into this space, certainly around psychopathy. Yeah, and, and like most careers, I fell into it rather than uh, getting to it by design, I guess. Um, actually, in New Zealand, we've had quite a strong um, professional psychologist's history of being involved with correctional services going back to the 1950s. It's one of the most intact services in the world in that sense. But I didn't know anything about that when I started my training as a clinical psychologist, uh, which regrettably, I have to say, was in the 80s now. It makes me feel very old uh, at the University of Canterbury. So um, I was lucky there to be have some of the sort of early influential um, forensic so- clinical psychologists in New Zealand, Bill Black, for example, and Steve Hudson. Um, who uh, were really interested in practice with offenders. So I I had that fortunate opportunity and then quite by accident some money became available in the Department of Justice as it was there uh, at that time for for clinical students to go into the prisons and do alcohol and drug counselling and anger management. And I had no idea this was an area of practice, much as a lot of people don't. So I went and did that and I was immediately hooked. I just thought it was a fascinating area. It's continued to grow in New Zealand. We've got, you know, uh, upwards of 120 clinical and other psychologists employed by Correction. So it's become a really big area of practice, but it wasn't at that time nearly as prominent. It's incredible to have such a large, large number. I'm not sure what it's what it's like here in uh, in Australia, but uh, it seems like a significant number. I think it probably is in Australia too. Overall, some parts that I'm aware of, and, and like you know, Correction Services of New South Wales and 
Victoria and so on, they do have quite large psychologist workforces doing much the same stuff we're doing here now. But for some reason, those areas don't tend to have the same prominence as some of the other practice areas in psychology. I really don't know why that is because people have a lot of misconceptions, but typically once they get into the work, they find it really fascinating and interesting and quite often get hooked. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I know one of the reasons why I, I want to reach out to you and, and, and get you on the the show is that there's, there's been, at least in my training and, and, and talking, you know, with lots of my colleagues, there's, there's an an understanding that, uh, you know, someone who's displaying these personality traits, these characteristics of, you know, psychopathy, uh, you know, that antisocial behavior, there's there's very little that, um, you know, treatment can do that. It's um, not very effective, that, uh, you know, outcomes are, are short-lived, if any. Uh, and and it, 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 this kind of creates, a, I suppose, a little bit of a, a belief system among, among uh, psychology. Uh, is that the case or have you found something to be different? I've heard people saying that in lots of um, university settings and it really puzzles me because since the 1980s, really, we have seen a steady accumulation of research showing um, or shedding light, I guess, on understanding how to alter outcomes for uh, people with entrenched criminal behaviour. So there's a massive empirical database informing Um, a lot of that work. There's more than 35 meta-analyses alone. I mean, it's just a real puzzle to me that people are completely unaware of this work um, because it's probably one of the most empirically um, supported fields of practice for psychologists in many ways. And and the idea that it doesn't work um, comes from a few different places, I think. Firstly, I think people uh, have expectations about how well it should work that are quite out of... um, out of sync with other fields. So very often we decide if an intervention for an offending person, a person involved in offending has worked by looking at the rate of new convictions, well, the number of people, the portion of people who have a conviction after finishing the program. And we compare that with people who are as like them as possible who didn't do the program. So we look at that difference in the proportion who get reconvicted, say over a year or two years or five years, and we get typically gaps between those two groups of anything from 10 to 30%, by which I mean not 10% of relative frequency, but relative percentage. But for example, if the comparison group, if 55% of them were reconvicted in the following two years, an effective treatment group might show only um, 30% or 40% were reconvicted. So, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 or even 30 people per 100 have survived past the period we'd expect. And we don't have a lot of other interventions um, we do in psychology that have that size of effect on such a hard outcome, arguably. Um, but people that look at that and they say, oh, only 10%, you know, only 10 people per 100. I mean, we do interventions. <laughs> we do heaps of health and medical interventions that have a much smaller effect than that, but are still considered really worthwhile because the cost of doing them relative to the outcome is, is you know, it's a really good ratio. So I, I don't understand, really. There's some really funny thinking goes on around the criminal justice um, domain. So people are kind of like, well, if anyone fails, then we should just give up completely. You know, if it, if it doesn't work for everybody, if it isn't a silver bullet, then let's go back to what we do anyway, which is just to be harsh and punitive, which we know doesn't work for anyone. You know, The average effect, for example, of imprisonment on its own on recidivism is 0% at best. It may, in fact, increase risk. So we're working already, when we're working with prisoners, we're working against that baseline. 
Yeah, it's incredible because the data, if if, if it says zero um, or, or potentially, you know, well, worsens it, um, yeah. you know, I mean, obviously there, there, there are lots of reasons to go out and, and incarcerate someone and, and, and you know, to, to take them away from, you know, harming other, you know, community members. But at the same time, we're then potentially going out and saying things might get a lot worse, you know, if we're in negative 3% um, and then we're going to, go out and, uh, you know, actively, you know, as, a, as a matter of fact, you know, uh, plan to release someone, you know, who, who's more likely to, to do yeah. more harm if, if yeah. we're in the negative, if we're not doing some sort of intervention, some sort of support, some sort of, uh, you know, assistance and learning in the meantime. That, well, that's exactly right. So that's a major point. But the other side, the other piece of information I think that's relevant with the psychopathy issue is that, and this is also unfortunately quite complex to explain. So the main way that psychopathy has been measured in the uh, in the research area relating to criminal behaviour, because we all have the idea that there might be people with psychopathy who are not criminals. So if we accept that premise, but put it aside for a minute, the main way that's used to measure it, and it's internationally, it's a huge amount of research, hundreds of publications a year, use the uh, Robert Hare's psychopathy checklists. Uh, the psychopathy checklist revised, the psychopathy checklist screening version, the, the, and these are called the PCLR, PCLSV, and there's a youth one. And so those are used to measure psychopathy. But the way that measure is designed, um, it captures, uh, it's got essentially two factors. The, the second one just captures people who do criminal behaviour. It's going to capture everyone who has a, an extensive history of criminal behaviour. And the other half of it that emphasises the personality traits more, you know, things like glibness and superficiality and callousness and so on. Now, it turns out that the items that relate to general criminal behaviour and are not exclusive to people with psychopathy are actually those that better predict criminal outcomes. So in other words, the psychopathy measure we're using predicts criminality, it predicts recidivism, reconviction, but it does that more through criminal history items than it does through the core psychopathy personality traits that we think of when we think of a psychopath. The problem is people then will say, but this measure of psychopathy, gosh, it's such a good risk assessment measure, therefore psychopathy is the disorder that creates criminal behaviour. And oh, it's wow. very unlikely that it's that simple, you know, because it, the other part about this instrument that's truly fascinating is that it captures up people who are both, I don't know what you think of when you think of a psychopath, but one of the, putting aside the Hollywood myths which get in the way of, of us understanding psychopathy anyway, we, I think of someone who's quite cold and callous and calculating and kind of obviously in their interpersonal manner feels different to other people, to me. You know, I would be able to tell there was something wrong with the, you know, people talk about the feeling of you know something missing behind their eyes, you know things like that in terms of how they come across that kind of chilling or there's something empty or there's a superficial glibness but 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 it's only superficial. But in fact, because of the way this instrument is designed, it also captures quite a lot of people who are anxious, depressed, at increased risk of suicide, um, get very stressed and upset about things in it as well, even though, so they'll score high on the psychopathy measure, but they'll also have what you'd call in, in psychology, a high level of negative emotionality or a um, high level of um, disinhibition or externalizing psychopathology. And so when you are working with those people, they've still, they're still mean, 
they've still done nasty things. They can be very callous about the people they've harmed, but they don't have this kind of detached, um, glib kind of um, uh, superficiality about them. Quite the reverse, in fact. They're often passionately hostile and angry about the people they hurt, for example, in a way that just doesn't feel psychopathic at all. So we're capturing up quite a lot of heterogeneity in this measure, but the measure can't tell those kinds of people apart because, it, in fact, the items that are in it were chosen because they didn't correlate with anxiety, not because they negatively or positively. So, so what we have, again, is in this instrument is these two factors, one that's about the personality characteristics of psychopathy and one that's about all this negative um, disinhibition criminal behaviour. And they correlate inversely uh, in, in opposite directions to negative emotionality. So your classic, uh, what people used to call a primary psychopath, they still probably do actually, will have, um, have less, or, you know, will actually have, um, be protected against negative emotionality. But your secondary psychopath is actually going to have higher levels of negative emotionality than you'd expect, and that's going to correlate with factor two, going to correlate positively with factor two and negatively with factor one. So even though they're high on factor one and two, they still have a lot of this negative emotionality. So that means you're actually dealing with quite a different kind of person with quite a different personal kind of feeling to them when you're actually interacting with them. And they also may, you know, show empathy for family members and be quite attached to some people. And so if we go back to the history of psychopathy, there's a guy called Karpman who did quite a lot of work in the 40s, and he distinguished these primary and secondary psychopaths. Um, and the secondary ones, he said, he described them as being a little like a marshmallow, a toasted marshmallow. So they're hard on the outside, but soft on the inside. Um, so they had this, some of the core characteristics of psychopathy they had just like the primary people do. And an example, perhaps, of someone like this might be Tony Soprano, actually, if you've ever seen The Sopranos. Sure. Because Tony Soprano, you know, I don't know if you remember, but he gets very upset about what happens to the ducks in a swimming pool. And he goes to therapy because he's actually quite depressed. And these are not things you think about with regard to psychopathy. He's quite deeply attached to his family, which, again, you know, in a way that feels quite real. You know, it's not superficial. So this is probably a secondary psychopath. So the problem, again, it's not so much... Um, Although scientifically we don't agree about the definition of psychopathy, um, if we're using the PCLR or one of those measures, and they, as I say, they dominate absolutely massively dominate this literature, um, then we'll be capturing quite a diversity of people in it, and and it therefore doesn't really add any value in terms of theor uh, theoretical understanding to say that the person is a chronic criminal because they have psychopathy. Because the reason we know they have psychopathy is because of their chronic criminality to a decent degree. It's tautological. And the last point I'd make about the treatment of psychopathy is that people like Cartman in the 40s found that people with psychopathy did not respond to treatment. But in those days, they were doing that sort of relatively unstructured psychodynamic psychotherapy, which doesn't work with any offenders. It doesn't change criminal behaviour. And we didn't know that then, but we now know what we can do with offenders to change criminal behaviour. And that wasn't an approach that worked. So when they found that they were untreatable, all offenders were untreatable for conduct disorder in those days. But also um, in the um, 70s, 60s and 70s, there was a very famous study called the Oak Ridge Study, um, which occurred in uh, Penetanguishing in an institution in, in Canada. And this study, um, it being the 60s, was highly experimental and was influenced <laughs> by some of the um, techniques, for example, the brainwashing techniques that developed in the Korean War. And so they really they just had this idea that you could take psychopaths and break them down, like psychologically break down their defences and kind of rebuild them as people. So they took a whole lot of people into this hospital and um, involuntarily, I mean, the ethics of this today would, 
would not get, you know, past step one. But it's, it's like some of these studies, you learn a lot from just how dreadful they are. So they took a bunch of people, um, and some of them were certainly people with high levels of psychopathy. But we didn't know that at the time because we didn't have this measure. So there was no standardised way of measuring it. And subsequently, people went back and retrospectively measured the sample so they could tell who was psychopathic or who had high scores and who didn't. And that's how we know this people with psychopathy in the study. But anyway, they did absolutely radical things like um, they had this idea that basically the community of patients could heal themselves, really. So they left the patients, both people with high levels of psychopathy and people who were actually reasonably unremarkable as um, personality-wise, but were in the hospital anyway. And they put them all together and essentially left them to their own devices a lot. So they, um, they were able to select from a range of medications, the patients were, to medicate other patients who they didn't think were doing well. And these medications included things like LSD um, and uh, the so-called truth serum drugs and things like that. And they uh, would put them in uh, these encounter rooms on their own as a group for up to two weeks naked and feed them through tubes in the wall i kid you not is, is this a science fiction book no but isn't it cool i mean it's just so horrifying <laughs> it's a marvelous example. for me nick um Nish, it's an example of of how you know psychology is not necessarily benign you know sometimes we kid ourselves that the worst we're doing is nothing but actually you can do harm i think and so this study, um, this thing happened and, um, and eventually was closed and people were released and so on and whatever. But then in the, in the 90s, I guess, uh, Marnie Rice and Grant Harris, who are two very well-established, actually, sadly, they're both dead now too, but two very well-established uh, forensic research, psychology researchers uh, and practitioners uh, went back, used the new PCLR as it was then, went back and coded from files people's scores and then we're able to look at what happened afterwards in terms of reconviction for people who had high scores versus the patients that had low scores and also compare them with prisoners who were matched on those scores to see what effect the treatment had and there was um there was there was nothing concerning in the rates of reconviction for offending in general uh people with psychopathy did more poorly but there wasn't any difference between the prison uh, people with psychopathy or high levels of psychopathy and the, and the hospital ones. But the hospital people with psychopathy actually showed a higher rate of violent reconviction than the prison people with psychopathy. And this led to the idea that the treatment had made people worse and therefore we shouldn't treat people with psychopathy. And that study has stood as the definitive evidence of that pretty much. There's one or two other things, but that's been hugely influential on kind of just stopping all of the research on the treatment of psychopathy or on the treatment of people with psychopathy uh, for many years, really. That's bizarre because I imagine you put any population in a hospital and say, you guys do your own treatment and uh, here's the medication <laughs> and you know, someone would decide you know, who needs more or who needs less. It's a zoo. It's going to make things, you know. <laughs> zoo is a good word for it. I know. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because you'd think we'd all know that and it just reflects the times. Things have changed. But, but it's interesting because – it's interesting because you know, as, as as a you know training psychologist, you you just hear this and you just adopt it. You just accept That's it. Right. You, know, you don't even you don't ask the question. You just say, "Oh, well, you know, he he's my senior lecturer, and they they're saying this, so therefore it must be true." And what nonsense! Yep. If if it's based on on you know something you know uh, of 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 that nature of of an experiment that basically um, 
you know, shows how appalling psychology can be. Um, you know, it, it, it's, um, it, it's incredible that that obviously then got so much traction and, and maintained traction that, that you, know, yeah. you know, we've got yeah. to give a voice to, to, to reality, not, not this absurdity. Um, wow, wow. I love it. Well, and <laughs> psychiatry might have been involved a bit too. In fact, I'm certain that the program was designed by a psychiatrist who, you know, was considered state-of-the-art. People came, you know, showed people through and all that sort of thing. I mean, what, what's really interesting too, though, is how our... So what fascinates me in the area of psychopathy is how our preconceptions about who people with psychopathy are guide our interpretation of everything. So so the Rice and Harris, who, who did this really interesting evaluation of, which, of how the program worked, if you like, um, interpreted this as indicating that people with psychopathy had developed, had kind of watched the other more human beings. It's almost like they're an alien species in the way that they talk about them. They'd watched the other patients and learned how to um, manipulate them better. And so they'd been harmed because they had the opportunity to, well, they didn't call it harm exactly, but they'd learned how to manipulate people better. And this was why they got more violent reconvictions. But my colleague, uh, Jennifer Scheme, who's at uh, UC, UC um, University, I'm trying to say, University of California at Berkeley, um, really thought about that and thought, well, if you learned how to manipulate people better, wouldn't you get reconvicted less? Like, violent behaviour is not a very skilled behaviour. It's actually quite an easy way to do things. Not lawful, but it's much harder than trying to negotiate with people or communicate with people more effectively and lawfully, right? So I don't see getting reconvicted for violent behaviour as a sign that you've developed better manipulation skills because it's actually, if anything, the reverse. And so I think there's an equally plausible argument, given that we know that many people who get diagnosed with high PCLR scores have the most um, appallingly traumatic childhoods and so on. They just have often had a very, very tough start in life and that's something that they've had to adapt and respond to in order to make it to adulthood. Isn't it possible this treatment actually traumatised them further and, and perhaps created an increase in hostility and anger or you know, any of the other kinds of things that could lead to more violent convictions? It certainly doesn't suggest they became more skilled offenders or we wouldn't even know they were out there doing this stuff, would we? So that was our counter-argument. And none of this can be established because it's post-hoc sure. speculation, but we, we thought that that was at least as plausible. And the basis for that was that they had a variety of things. Patients were there non-voluntarily, so they were mandated there and they couldn't leave. And if they didn't comply with the program, they had a variety of punishments that they used, including additional medication and seclusion and various other things that were disciplinary to get them to, you know, to re-engage with what they were supposed to be doing. And, of course, the people with psychopathy had more of those intrusive punishment interventions than people with low scores. So, again, if those things were damaging, they were also more likely to be given to people with high psychopathy. And so, potentially, they had more exposure to the most damaging elements of the program. In some sense, trying to establish uh, a treatment modality on, on the basis of they will know how to treat themselves. Yes. Uh, you know, trying to, I suppose, uh, I mean, where, where was, let, me, let me just ask the question. Where, what was the theory behind it? Was there a theory? Was there a basis behind this? I mean, how, how did someone come up with this, um, you know, design to, to kind of say, you know, I mean, for example, you know, when I think about Zimbardo's work, um, yeah. uh, 
assuming that that's all correct because I've, I've read some things recently that, that, that suggest it may not have been. I'm not sure. Um, but let, Pretty sure let's that's right. Was, <laughs> there was a theory behind that or at least there were some hypotheses that were play, put forward about how people will, will, will take on roles and so on and so forth. And, you know, then it was like, oh, wow, we didn't realize that and so on. What, what were the... What was the objectives uh, or, or the premise? Do you do you know about about much of that? I don't recall much of it. I I did look into it when we were first uh, looking at this area, which is several years ago now. And they they certainly did have a, some theoretical ideas about how it would work. Um, I don't think they'd been particularly tested with other populations, but but they were operating from a place of of as I say, adapting things like brainwashing techniques to how you could. So the idea that you could break people down. So I suppose in a way what they were trying to do was a fairly radical kind of treatment for personality disorder. Mm, um, mm. And, and we have continued to, you know, there's some really good stuff being developed now around the treatment of personality disorder, but it is, it is extremely hard to, um, to figure out what to do with, with people with some of these most enduring, well, we've all, I mean, all of us have a relatively enduring personality, but when you've decided for whatever reason that, that it's not functioning well for a person, it is, it is incredibly hard work. And I think that the point, of course, now is that we've moved from arguing that we're treating psychopathy in our programs where we've got people with high levels of psychopathy to, well, I make this distinction anyway, not everyone does. But I think what we're actually trying to do is reduce um, the propensity for criminal behaviour in people with psychopathy. We're not arguing that we're changing their personality traits. We may be, but in fact, we don't have in use any, any measurement tools that have the ability to detect that. So we're not actually even measuring that when we look at change across these programs. We're looking at the, um, the factors that uh, are known to predict recidivism. So more of the kind of dynamic risk factors for crime. It's a functional approach. It's mm. a functional approach, exactly. It's very, I mean, this, this whole area of criminal behaviour, rehabilitation and so on is based on, you know, basically on cognitive and behavioural kind of pretty much straight down the line, CBT and behaviorism and, and those sorts of things. So what are some of those things? Obviously, you know, I, I think it's fairly reasonable that, that, that psychology has got a decent handle on, you know, personality traits are fairly um, uh, robust and they're going to, you know, fairly well, you know, retain their structure over a lifetime. There's some deviation of movement, but, you know, it, it's fairly solid. And so obviously to do work on that, um, you know, isn't necessarily going to be so helpful. And and as, as you say, uh, it's actually the, the criminal behaviour um, that we're targeting, <clears throat> irrespective of psychopathy or not, because not everyone in jail, you know, meets psychopathy uh, or the measure of psychopathy. And, and there's still question marks around, you know, personality disorders and, and the like anyway. Um, so we may as well just, just target the, um, you know, uh, someone's understanding of, of their behavior, cause and effect, um, you know, that might kind of uh, help with functionality. What are the sorts of things that, that, that treatment, so to speak, if I can use that word, um, you know, or, or, or education or, um, you know, exposure to, to, to concepts, what, what is it that we, we do these days to, to um, you know, try and assist, try and help? And, and how does it work? Is this usually done within a, um, you know, within a jail, um, in, in other services? How, how does this all, how does this space all work? 
Okay, there's a bit in there, isn't there? Nick? There's a lot. There's a lot. I only so, get one opportunity to interview you, so I'm going to try uh, everything. No, it's terrific. It's <laughs> terrific, and it's really good for me to practice trying to pack everything into small amounts of time. So, um, most of the countries or jurisdictions who are trying to work on reducing recidivism through what you might call social or um, you know psychosocial interventions, as opposed to trying to reduce it through chain gangs, for instance. Those of us who are trying to do a dismal positive thing, and that would include um, big chunks of the Western world, really, um, parts of the US. It's actually probably starting to grow a bit in the US, but certainly Canada, you know, Britain, Australia, and New Zealand, um, and pockets elsewhere, are using uh, research that came from a very small number of Canadian psychologists. So Canada has been ridiculously influential in this whole field. The penetanguishing study I was talking about was in Canada. But in addition, people like Paul Jondro, um, Andrew uh, Don Andrews, who again, unfortunately, has now passed away, uh, Jim Bonta, Steve Wormuth, um, just a small handful of psychologists um, accidentally kind of got working together during the 80s and, and onwards, and they really started this empirical, the development of the empirical evidence base for what's now called the psychology of criminal conduct. There's a very famous uh, book called um, The Psychology of Criminal Conduct by Andrews and Bonta that, that shapes a lot of this thinking. It's all published in individual studies as well, but they brought it together into a reasonably difficult to read but useful book that's often used as a text when people are teaching these courses. So broadly speaking, what we um, now understand from things like uh, individual studies becoming meta-analyses is what the correlates of reconviction are that look changeable. And we also understand how to change behaviour and so when we put that together, we have the ability to design programs that have effective content and processes in them that can hopefully change these dynamic or apparently dynamic, and I'll tell you why I'm saying that in a minute, constructs that are linked to criminal behaviour. So the reason I'm saying apparently dynamic is because we don't have that many empirical demonstrations that changing those factors, that the amount of change made in a program or intervention is actually linked to recidivism. What we do know is that when programs target those things, those programs tend to have lower recidivism rates, if you appreciate the difference. And that, that's, pretty, that's pretty much good enough to, um, to help design programs because very often in systems we're talking about, we've got thousands of offenders, thousands of people in prison in whatever jurisdiction. We, we need systems that can actually deal with mass numbers in a way. So... So um, rather than trying to measure everyone's individual change, which we're not going to do with everybody, we're going to try and develop interventions we can put a lot of people through. Um, so generally speaking, then, those interventions are going to be similar with all of the people you might target for them, no matter uh, what level of personality disorder they might have. So what we know from this, these, uh, this research is that we should put our time and effort into people who are at the highest levels of risk, because people vary in their personal, individual propensity for additional criminal behaviour. So some people will come into prison or come into a community sentence with very little history. And, and the best thing to do with those people is to get them out of the system as fast as possible, because there is some evidence that if you intensify intervention for them, they'll actually come back into the system more frequently. So we've somehow harmed them. There's various ideas about how that happens. But low-risk people, get them out the door, get them back into their lives as soon as possible. And so all of this presupposes we can assess risk. So there's quite a lot of... Um, Low risk in that, in that meaning someone who Criminal propensity. Yeah, okay. Yep, yep. Yep, so someone, you know, someone who might, for example, have one, or, one sexual offence or one murder. 
and nothing else. We get people like that or just a very few things. So we can assess where it's going to continue from low through to high. We're better off putting our resources into the medium and especially the high-risk end. The high-risk end are people who, who not only will reoffend and get reconvicted, but could be back in prison within 100 days of release from prison. You know, they're really, really risky. And so we know if we put our resources there, we're going to have more impact on, on subsequent recidivism. But the key thing is that we have to put more into those people. So the more risky people are, the more needs they have in treatment, if you like, and the more effort we have to put into supporting and helping them to change. So they won't, you know, we used to go, we used to go out and do 20 hour interventions with people who were quite high risk, you know, 20 hours of anger management. Laughable now. Most of our interventions at the bottom end are sort of 300 hours, you know, and then, and then we do more with people afterwards. Because we're talking about people who've often been going slowly off the rails since their childhood or early teens. We're often working with them in the adult criminal justice system in their early 30s. It, things are really entrenched. So not only have they developed entrenched problems that keep them in, in the system, but they've also got, um, they're missing the things that would help to protect them as well. And so programs basically do that. They, and I say programs because a lot of it is delivered in group interventions. And that's so, why entrenched, entrenched is the high level versus obviously the low level. If someone's gone out and murdered someone, you know, they've uh, had a moment where something awful has occurred. They've been impulsive, enraged, whatever it is. They've done something yes, awful, yes. absolutely awful. Yep. Having said that, there isn't a huge history of, you know, from, from day dot, you know, uh, uh, you know, 90 criminal offences that have gone, you know, in, in front of, you know, with notice of the police and so on and so yes, forth, yes. Um, which probably actually means, you know, probably 600 offences rather than um, the ones probably. that have been caught on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but, you know, there, there, there's that appreciation that this is someone who, who um, you know, uh, has still done something awful, but it, it, it's happened on occasion. It, this isn't a, a repeat offender, so to speak, already. It's kind of already recognised that because they're 36 years old and it's the first time they've been sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, looked at by the law. That's, that's exactly right. So we're not giving that person a pass. What we're saying is they're probably not going to reoffend if we do nothing. They know what they need to do. Yeah. They already got in place. You know, there's a lot of things about their life that actually fundamentally work okay or they know what went wrong and they can do their own thing to address it, you know. And, I mean, the classic example there can be someone who's murdered their partner after a long history of uh, conflict or, you know, your classic example actually is a, what's called an over-controlled, you know, domestic homicide offender who has been sitting on growing anger and hostility for years and then one day really does lose control of that, you know. So they're mismanaging their issues with their partner for many years by just bottling them. One day, and I've seen people like this, you know, one day they lose their ability to keep sitting on that and do something very serious. It could be a serious assault. Sometimes it's a murder. They've got no other history. Now, those issues could arise again, but a person like that often has better ability anyway to recognise that and to do something about it in their own lives so they don't need the interventions of a system that has limited resources anyway and really has to decide where best to put and them. And often I'm assuming that there'd be remorse and regret and all those sorts of things that we would often yes. often see in those, maybe? Yes, but regret and remorse don't are not good predictors of recidivism. It's a well, widely misunderstood note. <laughs> Tell us about that. Tell us about that. <laughs> oh, dear. <clears throat> Well, again, if you get topic back a little bit, but please, oh uh, no, it's it is relevant though. I mean, judges particularly put a premium on. They on do. Um, I mean, it's interesting, really, because when when most of us do something wrong, we are quite good at defending and justifying why the thing we did was okay. 
from the most minor thing that you or I might do through to serious things. We all have these kind of protective mechanisms. They're called various things in the psychological literature, justifications, minimization, denial. Um, in the case of Bandura is very excellent work with uh, aggressive behavior. They called, it's called you know, techniques for moral disengagement. So, you know, yes, I was mean to you this morning, but you made me really angry. You shouldn't have done this, and I wouldn't have gotten it. You know, we all have this, and there's a very good yes. book uh, by my good friend and colleague, Carol Tavares, called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Us. And it, what it really does, it's a few years old now, not that old, but it's a really good read because she's a terrific writer. But um, it traces through a whole lot of different kinds of examples from politicians to criminals of people defending themselves against their own actions. So we all do that. And, and doing that doesn't necessarily indicate the person is incapable of feeling remorse or empathy, actually. It's just that we, we often struggle with empathy for the people that we hurt because we, you know, we, we hurt them because they were doing something. It's not that we're bad people who like to hurt people. That's a, something we'd never say about most of ourselves. But the reason remorse is a bad predictor, too, is because the person who, um, who feels a lot of remorse may, in fact, be someone who has a kind of cyclical pattern where they do stuff to people because they feel very justified in doing it. And then afterwards they can see what they've done. I mean, you take that anger example you give where someone gets really angry with someone, has poor self-regulation skills, goes off and really harms them, and then afterwards thinks, oh my goodness, what have I done? But that could happen again. It could happen yes. again and again and again. So that's probably probably why remorse and, and, and those kinds of things are actually poor predictors. So a judge will, will be basically saying, well, that's a good person. But a good person can still do a lot of bad things. And, and that's, in fact, one of the really satisfying things about working with offenders, I guess, is, or working with people in the criminal justice system, is you get some really great people. They, they keep hurting other people, and we can't forget that. But they fundamentally have re some really good qualities as well. And that complexity is what keeps people intellectually and emotionally engaged with the work long term, I think, as psychologists. Because you have to figure out how to put all that together. But people mm. are packages, as we say around here. You know, people are packages, good and bad. And it's rare to see, uh, uh, to be working with someone with a high criminal propensity where you can't find something likeable about them, to be honest. Or something you can be very sympathetic about as well. But yes, we're slightly adrift here, remorse. <laughs> no, if, we go, if, if, if we go back to, and I suppose the two questions come, come together, uh, going back to uh, uh, following on from this question of what therefore is the targets, you know, what, 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 what's okay. a better predictor? And I suppose how does that tie into what is it that we do? You know, what, what is our treatment yes, there for perfect. target to yep. both those things come together? Yep. So I was talking about targeting towards high risk. So, I mean, this model is called the risk-need-responsivity model. It's got actually got something like 18 principles, but people talk about these first three the most. So we've got targeting higher rather than lower risk people and giving them more service. Then we've got what's called the need principle. And the need principle says that we should spend most of our efforts and resources on targeting things that are correlates of recidivism but we think are changeable and there's quite a number of these but they're summarized in what's called the central eight and the central eight include simple things like associations with criminal peers uh, criminal thinking or antisocial thinking uh, having a kind of restless um, aggressive antisocial highly autonomous temperament or tendency to operate that way uh, substance abuse problems uh, problems in education and employment, problems with your family, and problems with the use of leisure time or, or you know, uh, spare time. So all of those are areas that can be targeted for change if the person has problems in those areas. And that means that actually a very wide range of interventions can be developed. So we, for example, we do look at marital and family interventions, particularly with young people, family interventions can be very effective. 
um, and you've got more chance there because you can have the ability to affect a, a relatively total environment because the person's living with parents, so you can engage with them and so on. Um, so you can do a wide range of interventions. We tend to get our biggest impact from the uh, psychological rehabilitation interventions, but people will also have, there's plenty of studies showing effects from uh, employment interventions, for example, that, that follow these principles. So the third principle is called responsivity, and this is about how you do an intervention or a program or service. And the idea here is, it's, there's two parts to it actually. The first part is that you use techniques but people will say, oh, cognitive behavioralism is a way to work with offenders. That isn't strictly true. What the literature shows, what the research literature shows, is that interventions that use social learning and behavioral techniques to influence change work the best. So what we're saying there is if we look at how we, get, how we persuade and get people to make behavioral changes, that literature will inform how we run our programs. So, for example, we do quite a lot of um, working with where people are at. So if they're not ready to change, they're actually denying that various things are an issue, then we might use motivational interviewing techniques, which we know can be effective for shifting people into at least contemplating how these things are actually messing up their lives. And we would also use an awful lot of modelling, reinforcement, you know, approval for the behaviour we want to see, teaching people lots of different skills to, as alternative strategies to solve the problems they're solving by offending, you know, very simple practical things like this. So that means that quite a lot of our programmes um, are geared towards uh, skills, like a lot of basic skills teaching. So the other part of the responsivity uh, principle is how, you, how we get people engaged in our in, in change and in our interventions. So um, individual responsivity refers to the fact that we're often working with quite, people who are quite difficult to work with as psychologists. So, you know, as psychologists, we might have all had this image of working with the so-called Yavis client, you know, a person who comes in and they're totally, you know, ready to go and they kind of almost don't need us, they're so receptive. That is not your offender population. Uh, in fact, the higher risk people get, the more difficult they are to work with. And so when you're in an intervention like that and you've got your usual intuitions about what's working and what's not, like it seems to me like the person isn't even listening to me, every time they come into the session something else has gone wrong, you know, they don't do their homework, they're often irritable, I, I'm not doing anything here, you often therefore appraise what you're doing very negatively and that the person's making no progress. But in fact, when you use hard measures of outcomes like actual evaluations of what's going on around a prison unit in terms of that person's behaviour, like the observations of other people, or you're looking at recidivism, you can find that even though all that sort of um, chaos can be going on in the actual intervention, the person may still be making progress. So our own gut feelings about client progress are probably not that sound because we know that, that for example, people with a really high risk of criminal propensity often intellectually not, um, they're, they're street smart, but they didn't do well in school. They have short attention spans. There's lots of ADHD. There's lots of trauma responses still in action. So we get people who are dissociating, people who get very anxious when you um, are wanting to do stuff. They're afraid of change. They've got a sense of hopelessness because they've never managed to get it right before. They hate anything that looks like school. They may be not even speaking English well. Um, they may have head injuries. They typically do. You know, there's a lot going on there that you need to take into account. And they're really often not going to get to a place where they think, gosh, I've been doing badly. I need to change myself on their own. If we wait for them to take up the opportunity to do an intervention, they often won't do it. So with your high-risk people, um, 
one of the one of the things we need to work on in treatment is actually responsivity to treatment in itself. So how do we engage them? And so, uh, for example, in our high-risk programs here in New Zealand, in our prisons, um, typically people come into those programs because they know they need to do them to get out. Uh, the parole board may even have told them they, they won't get out without one, or they may be there because they can get out early. And, you know, people are like, oh, that's bad because they're not intrinsically motivated, you know. But, in fact, what we're doing in the early parts of our interventions is getting them engaged with the programme. Like, what can you get out of this programme? If I can't convince you that anything my programme is offering is of value to you, then I agree. Go do something else, you know, because I have essentially failed in my job. And, interestingly, the things that we teach, like problem-solving and communication skills and relationship skills and, you know, how to better manage alcohol and drugs and what do you say to your peers when they want to come round and talk about your next egg rob, you know, things like that. It turns out those things are quite useful in other aspects of people's lives. It's not just their offending. But we didn't look at that until quite recently. There was a thesis done in Canada again where they looked at whether or not these skills that we teach are able to be used or people are using them to improve other aspects of their lives. And, lo and behold, of course they are. So, you know, we can sell those things and we can get people engaged. But we also design our programs so they're not heavy, hopefully not heavy on classroom learning, so they don't overload people who are not typically quick learners. And we understand that people are going to be irritable and difficult at times and, and you know, emotional and hard to work with. So all of that together means that the last part of the puzzle is how we conduct ourselves so we know again, from the research literature, that a lot of the stuff that you'd think about with other types of psychological treatment in terms of what you're trying to do in your relationship with the client, how you work with them, applies here too, but even more strongly. So it turns out, unsurprisingly, that the ability to develop a good working alliance is predictive of outcome. So you're, you're, the person's ability as a probation officer, as a psychologist, as an employment coordinator, as a prison officer probably, to treat people with respect as people, to use humour, to talk to them collaboratively, to be warm with them, those factors also predict outcomes for offenders in and of themselves, as does the, you know, how much you try to use uh, positive reinforcement to get the behaviour you want as opposed to punitive strategies, um, the, the, you know, your ability to, to use your bond with the person to structure the way you interact with them so that you're talking to them about things they can do that were, are related to their offending propensity and so on. All of that stuff is important too. These are now called, well, they used to be called core correctional practices and they're really to do with how staff providing any kind of service at all uh, work, come across, like try to work with people who are in the criminal justice system. So all of that together can work, but it's a lot. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I suppose there's a complexity in that. While while you were talking, what was coming to mind is 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 very much similar to, and you know, I hope I've got, I've captured some of this. Um, please please correct me. It's almost like alternative schooling pathways, you know, where you know it's student focused. It's not structured learning. It's very much about the relationship, the rapport building, almost like a a reparenting sort of space, but it yeah, requires yeah. hours and hours and hours and hours through that relationship, through, you know, conversation. And it's not structured, you know, here are the seven aspects of. It's a conversation that, uh, you know, you get buy-in over time. And in actual fact, the group might, you know, 
buy-in or there might be some leaders that develop in the in the groups and so on and so forth and 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 there's sort of learning that happens you know on that basis and it's probably discussed outside of the classroom so to speak um, because it becomes something that's of interest or someone goes wow that that was actually interesting you know lots of seeds are planted it, it's an alternative pathway to, to, to learning that that that, that doesn't, you know, use these uh, traditional ways. And I'm assuming a lot of and the high risk um, probably would have benefited from, from alternative, um, you know, schooling pathways to, to assist them in, in that engagement so that they stayed at school longer um, and probably learnt some of those values and, and um, you know, ways of interacting, socialising and so on, um, you know, making better choices. Is, am I capturing some of this? I think that's a terrific analogy, actually, um, because I think one of the reasons people have not traditionally thought of this as an area for clinical psychologists to practice is because it is um, it has some interesting components we don't often think of that are to do with kind of, ed- you might call it re-education, but we're probably going to call it education, actually, because quite often re-presupposes there was something in the first place. So it, there is a lot of teaching. Um, and I mean, we teach all our clients things, um, the, if we're cognitive behavioural therapists particularly. You know, there is a lot of um, kind of skills and stuff like that involved. So that there is that aspect. So I think it is a really good analogy. I think the piece that's, that's um, behind all that that we're not talking about at the moment is that uh, when we do this very well, we get people started started baby steps on a process yes. of change the big missing component is what they're going to after the program or indeed what their social and living context is so if you're running alternative schooling but at home you you live with, in a, at a gang pad or you know your mother's a meth addict and um, there's a lot of violence and nobody cares about when you go to school there's only so much school can do of course and that's the same for us so the programs i'm talking about um I mean, in a way, I make it sound like a bit of a utopia, probably. To run a program like this is, is eminently possible, but also very difficult because you have to keep get a lot of things moving together. You need good staff and you need good resources and good management and you need a commitment to doing it and you need uh, really good supervision so you can make sure the program doesn't drift away. And, and as I say, a lot of these programs are group programs and one of the arguments for that uh, is, is throughput, of course, for the managers. We can get more people through treatment. But the, the sort of really... Um, high integrity argument from a treatment point of view is that it's treatment happening in a social context and that's where offending happens for the most part as well these are um, you know social context is hugely important to offending both to doing it and to getting the ideas and learning the ways of thinking and, and all the stuff that maintains it so as you can imagine when you're in a group treatment like that it is the case that other group members will if they're um, as, as the group culture builds up um, they will be actually quite useful as treatment agents in and of themselves because they can often spot things in each other that they don't have insight into about themselves because we all have that sort of defensive thing going on. So they can be very powerful influences. Um, which, so that's all well and good. But if you're, as I say, if you're going out of that um, program into an environment where you're the only one who's, got, who's made these baby steps towards doing things better and more, um, more healthily, really, and more pro-socially, and so on. Then it's really unlikely that you'll succeed. And so we have, we have a, a strong recognition I have for many years that the next steps are also really important. Um, but when they don't happen, we also have some pretty sad stories of people going out, for example, to their relationship or their fano in New Zealand. We've got, um, you know, a lot of people who are indigenous in our systems, and they go out to their extended family network or whatever. 
and those people are exposed then to their new jargon that we've taught them, their new psychological jargon, and they may feel incredibly disempowered by their, you know, um, their prisoner coming back now and he's talking all this babble and he wants to do this communication stuff and he wants to do this and that and the other thing. And, and, And so there are terrible stories, not heaps of them, but there are certain stories where things have gone quickly wrong because the offender the offending person came out, did something new. The, the environment was like, you know, what do you think you're doing? Really hostile about it. The, the person who was trying to implement this got really upset and went back to what they do. It's like, you know, this is a waste of time. I might as well just solve this problem the way I was doing. I'll, you know, I'll give her a, a, a biff. And so they're immediately caught with, um, you know, new assault. And when you get them back, they're like, well, I tried to do it, but, you know, it just doesn't work, that stuff. And you're like, well, what if we bothered to put intervention into your family as well? Because actually, um, you know, your family is probably, in those cases, with the highest risk people, the whole family is probably struggling in various ways with all sorts of social and personal issues, um, which, you know, out to our services are not coming together across government to really um, set in place the things that would make the initial investment with that person in prison um, re- really have it recognised or or take it through and into good outcomes. That's one of the central eight, isn't it, in terms of the people you associate with? And obviously, family is a difficult one that you can kind of pull away from. Um, yeah, uh, very you difficult. Know, that's a that's <laughs> a, a, a big one. I know with drug, um, you know, uh, drug use. You know, a lot of it is is once again a contextual, um, you know. Uh, cyclic problem and and i'm assuming there's probably some similarities here and obviously a lot of a lot lot of criminal behavior occurs because of drug use as well yes yeah there's i mean there's a lot of overlap there are very high rates of drug and alcohol use and abuse in the higher risk uh, populations uh and of course in new zealand in particular we're especially concerned about methamphetamine it's a real growing problem here and so there's a lot of criminal activity around that as well in various ways so yeah those they're not unrelated populations for sure and so some of the same sorts of interventions can work so just getting back to the point you made about you know outside of schooling maybe you outside of classroom you maybe take some of these things up so uh, what we're trying to do with our best group intervention programs is to think of them as, as individual interventions in group so we're trying to personalize and this is hard because our programs are manualized and some of them where we're using not very um, staff who haven't been that well trained and aren't necessarily well resourced, we may really bolt down the program so that it's highly manualised, without you know, which does potentially limit its effectiveness, but also protects against drift away from what you're supposed to be focusing on. But if you're able to invest more, then you can give your therapists more scope about how they achieve the goals of the intervention, which means that you can try to. Um, make sure that that that, that intervention whatever you're doing in each session is is really personalized to the different people in the group so that's one component it's hard to do it can be done it's very much philosophically driven i know that uh, it's it's manualized in terms of this is what we're trying to to achieve but there's a philosophy around how individuals are engaged with and that that, 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 that's obviously going to be very different for each person and what comes to mind for me is you know the uh, you know the bald guy with with tattoos who's the um, you know top dog at the boxing um, you know training club you know at the yeah. local YMCA or whatever it might be. You know he might have a very specific way about how he engages with each with each of the boys that come along, and um, you know he has a particular persona. You know you know uh, he holds a particular way of of, of being. He's got some cred. Uh, and he also 
is very individualistic around how he treats each person. Some he'll drive yeah. harder, some he'll be softer, yeah. some he'll say, I want to see you after class. You know, it's all different, but philosophically, you know, there, there's certainly something that, that, that he's doing that, that, that says, I care for you, you are important. That's right. Yeah, time. and I guess, I guess you feel seen as, as a person working with that individual to the extent that they seem to be able to respond to what you need as opposed to having a blanket approach. You know, like I can remember years ago, I, I, was, I rode, I was a rower, and we had a coach. And, I and in hindsight, I think he probably, I mean, he did a good job, but, but I had problems with getting too wound up before races. You know, I get really anxious. And, um, and he would rack us all up, which was extremely unhelpful for me because I didn't need more racking up, you know, and some of the others didn't either, but some did. You know, some of them needed really motivating to, to get themselves into a, a high level of adrenaline for the, for the thing. So, so that was when I first started to think, I think, about the importance of knowing your people and, and tailoring what you're doing. So that's a big part of it. The other part that I haven't mentioned is that we, where we can, we have dedicated units. So when we do this, these interventions in prison, they do not have to be done in prison. In fact, the evidence is that if you can do them in the community, they're more effective. It's a lot harder to get people along to community interventions, yeah. though. You really have to probably go out in a van and round them up quite often. It's like herding cats. <laughs> totally difficult. Um, and you don't have that intensive opportunity that you do because we don't have a lot of halfway houses or you know that sort of interim accommodation that you can run an intensive program in. So we're trying to create in prison these total environments in a way, and we're, not, we're a long way from doing that. But what we are doing is dedicating with our highest-risk people um, we're dedicating units to interventions. So we might have, for example, a 40-bed unit. It's running four groups at a time with 10 uh, men. It's because it's mostly men that we're treating here. Sure. Uh, and going at a time. So they're all in different parts of the program because they start in cohorts. And the, the unit itself, wherever possible, we're trying to turn that into a therapeutic environment. We're not calling them therapeutic communities because they're not. We're not at that stage. What we try to call them communities of change so we're trying to make sure that treatment does generalize out into the prison unit itself that the prison officers are on board as well that the men are using what they learned wherever they can practicing it needing to apply it to do things like um, getting a job for example in the unit or or getting to do certain kinds of activities creating as much of a supportive um, whānau or, or you know, extended family community. So we're trying to simulate the community really as much as we can in prison. Now, there are obviously pretty severe limitations to that, but you can do more than you'd think uh, mm. if you've got the commitment from prison management and if the level of security allows it. Uh, you can do more than you think to create um, and simulate community context and make sure that people in the program are trying to take their learning out into that context to generalise it and to some extent to socialise them to things that some people have never been engaged in in the community before. In some sense, kind of uh, uh, actively working on uh, the intermediate steps between going straight back into the old context. Uh, you know, so there's a couple of steps in between or at least opportunities, touch points, additional points that if someone chooses to, they can go out and reach out, you know, to, to maybe continue learning those things or not even learning, just exposure, being in those environments, you know, that that, that remains their focus, um, uh, which which I think is, is, is exceptional. One of the things that, that I think AA, you know, does incredibly well, Alcoholics Anonymous is, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, it's marketed so well to go out and say, we're here, we're here, we're here, we're everywhere, um, we're non-judgmental uh, and we're not going to ask too much of you. 
uh, but there's this ongoing conversation and, and, and you know, reinforcement. And then obviously where the rapport built gets built is when someone someone has their, um, I forgot what the, the word is, um, like a, a mentor, a um, sponsor. Mm, they call sponsor, it a sponsor. Sponsor, yeah. Um, yeah. That, that becomes the, the psychologist, right? You know, where, and the social interaction, someone who cares and someone who's invested. So it is a real clever um you know, a system involved in in that for anyone that's willing to, um, you know, participate and be, be involved. And I suppose we're trying to kind of say, what are the touch points or possibilities that can help with that transition? Yeah, I think that's right. And I do think we could learn something from AA because um, while there are perils to having uh, people with lived experience involved in looking after or mentoring other people, the, the point I think was, I mean, there's two reasons why those people can be important. One is the lived experience. So the credibility is very high. But the other part of it is that our support services are often not around except nine to five. And that's not when things go wrong for people. So, one, you know, one of these frustrating things about trying to bring together services in the community to help support people is that we, at least in New Zealand, we haven't really got our heads around being available when people need us, you know, we're, we're just not there. Probation officer goes home at, you know, five o'clock or whatever, and after that you're on your own. And, and the things that go wrong for people often go wrong after hours. So that, and that's, um, that buddy or support sponsor, as you say in AA, like typically the ethos of that is I understand it, and it's, it's pretty much from all the usual bad sources like movies and books, um, is, is that, you know, that they are, because of their own experience and what they needed, they'll come out at two in the morning if you call them, which is a very, you know, that's a rare service. We're under-resourced, right? We, we, there, there aren't enough, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, uh, service providers, but where the, 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 the sponsors, I suppose, are those that are the exemplars that mm. they, mm. and in actual fact, it's become a part of their identity. Yes, uh, it is. That's right. So, you know, in, in many senses, I think they, they do a uh, much greater service than what a psychologist, you know, could could, oh, yeah. could ever yeah. do because they're there all the yeah. time, you know, and, and yeah. there's daily conversations and all sorts of things. And, and um, sure, they might not have, you know, particular training, uh, but I'll tell you what, they 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 have the rapport and we all know yeah. that Therapeutic yeah. Alliance is, is, is a big, big um, yep. uh, important aspect. <clears throat> yeah, they have the rapport and they have the commitment. So, you know, those are terrifically advantageous things once you've perhaps been given some of the tools you need anyway uh, in treatment. Yeah. How do you go about, um, you know, getting this information out there in, in, in terms of, you know, is psychology still sort of trained the, the, this way in psychiatry? Is, is, is government involved in, in um, well, you know, do, do, do you work with government in terms of, you know, policies and, and, and how these spaces can be, um, you know, improved so that we can help those that are, you know, obviously in, you know, not only in high risk, but they themselves are going through great anguish and, 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 and difficulties in their own lives. Yeah, um, in New Zealand, uh, we've been very fortunate that um, recent governments have been really committed to evidence-based social policy. Our last government, which was our allegedly slightly more right-wing government, although it's, a, it's been a battle for the right in recent years, as we all know, um, but our, our national government, as it's known, um, had particularly Bill English when he was the Prime Minister was very uh, committed to evidence. So, I mean, they, they are challenged because their point of difference is tough on crime, right? So they, they put that out to their, their base, as we call it now, but at the same time, they know that doesn't work. So they're trying to walk this difficult line 
because behind the scenes they are very committed to corrections, uh, putting money and resources and effort into doing these things that are the only things that we can show actually associated with a reduction in recidivism. New Zealand government's actually, or corrections, I guess, is very brave in that I don't know how this came about, but their annual report reports on the effectiveness of these programs every year. And I don't know, I stand to be correct, I don't know of any other government that puts that out in, on, on the web, in the public domain, how their programs are performing in terms of recidivism. It's very reduction. progressive, isn't it? It's, and it's been happening for quite a while too. So even, as I say, even our right-wing Get Tough government has been supportive. Bill English, as I say, in I think around about 2009, went into the media and said, we know prison doesn't work, it's a moral and fiscal failure. You know, that's a pretty rad thing, isn't it? Yeah. So, and, and of course, we've now got this very um, progressive, more left-wing government, and, and they similarly subscribe to this. So for quite a number of years, um, Corrections has had no real difficulty with the concept. The reality is different um, because we have competing forces operating in our correctional system. So in recent, in the last several years, we had a big blip in our prison numbers. We're already amongst the most imprisoning people in the Western world anyway. Not well known, but New Zealand um, is second, pretty much second or third only to the US in, ter in terms of the sort of English-speaking and Western countries in terms of imprisonment rates. Really? Higher, yeah, higher than Australia. Although Australia's jurisdictions are making a rapid progression towards us at the moment, which is quite sad. But we have yeah, to, we, we have work to, hard at it. We work hard at it. You are putting a lot of effort into that. Yeah, you know, and at $100,000 a year, if it's doing nothing in terms of um, reducing risk, and if you don't need it for containment and safety, and once you've got past the point where you've done enough punishment, you'd have to wonder about what the point is in investing in that. But So there's always a tension, between, I think, between investing in new prison beds and having money for, for rehabilitation. And, and, and the other part of it for us, certainly, is the workforce issues. Like we, we don't have enough workforce. We don't have enough skilled people to do this work. And it's difficult to change that. Um, so we have quite a significant workforce gap in New Zealand in terms of psychologists. We import a lot and we, uh, we train as fast as we can, but we don't have enough training places. And that's for the entire sector. So once you takes, and, and Corrections does, you know, purloin quite a lot of good clinical psychologists, um, but that means there's even fewer for health or for accident-related uh, work or for, um, you know, the other places where we need psychologists. So psychologists are in short supply, so are the other people, uh, the other skilled people who run these kinds of programs. So those are all limiting factors really on, on being able to implement this as much as we could. So we know it works, uh, it can work if it's done well, if it's not done well it doesn't work, and there's lots of ways that it can drift. And there's some pretty sad examples of that around the world where programs have drifted off their essential model um, and, and then just not been effective. Um, so wasted resource, if you like. You've mentioned drift a few yeah. times. Yeah, uh, right. right. Talk about that. Well, what do you mean by that? Is, is that that propensity to kind of lose focus on what we're trying to do? And, and, and well, 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 what's drift mean? Well, you know, I was puzzling about this the other day, Nish, and I'm, I keep trying to figure out, it's probably so obvious really, but I keep trying to figure out why is it that we, that when we start doing something, we don't keep doing it the same. Like it doesn't matter what it is, it changes over time. And if you look at things like programs and, 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 and pilots and so on, we have to keep relaunching them periodically to freshen them up because they get, they just change and they, and they lose their shiny status and, and then, and sometimes they then stop working. So but, but just generally speaking, everything we do changes over time and we're often not aware of it. So in this area, what I'm really talking about, of course, is the issue of therapeutic fidelity or integrity. And so if we know 
what we should be doing is quite constrained, then the challenge is to keep doing that thing and not move somehow into other things. And what we find with this kind of work is that people get quite easily caught up in doing the humanitarian kinds of things, or humanistic, that are important. Like I'm, not, I'm not in any way saying they're not important, but on their own won't reduce recidivism. And so this is what really was the breakthrough in the 80s and 90s, was establishing the key things that you have to target if you're going to reduce recidivism. And they don't include, typically, things like self-esteem or wellness or you know, mood management or you know, depression treatment or um, you know, any of these actually quite important things that people do often need, but addressing those won't reduce recidivism. So a lot of us are trained to look at everyone's needs all over, right, as psychologists and so on, and we come into this with an ethos of wanting to help people and so I think a lot of what's happening is that we need to keep being reminded that we have limited resources and our job here is to help them this way and not this way. So it's one of the things that happens. The other thing that tends to happen, because these are scary, challenging people, or at least they look like it quite often, but you know, they can be quite aversive. If you're you know, a young player, as it were, then being in a group of, with 10 high risk, you know, men at high risk of criminal behaviour can be quite intimidating. Um, they can be quite hostile at times uh, and unpleasant. Um, so the, the challenge is that you have to keep getting in there with them, getting in among them and, and doing stuff, like teaching them stuff and getting them to do it. And there's a tendency, I think, to pull back. I have this theory that all us clinical psychologists just love teaching people stuff. And so we'll pull back to the sort of psychoeducational level quite often, either because we've got frightened of the clients or because it's just too much work. I think, you know, we often get really tired. These programs are really hard work. They need a lot of support to run well. Um, and so we'll pull back to this sort of talking at people level. And then it stops being effective too because you're not getting people to do stuff, to apply things, to, to learn how to do them. And if the people we're working with could learn just by being told to try something and not actually trying it, you know, they would have probably learned in school <laughs> much better than they did. So they need to experience it and try it out and mess it up and, and figure out how it's going to work for them. Yeah, there's a human, there's a human sort of a bias where, where we, we want to, you know, as uh, practitioners kind of, avoid move away from what's hard as well and i know yeah, yeah. i know when i do supervision with uh you know uh staff or other psychologists you know talking about going where going where it's hard you know going where yeah. there's tears, yep. you know going where there's yep. pain you know that's yeah. that's where we do our work rather than the psycho ed um not suggesting yeah. psychoeducation doesn't have value of course it does um, but it's not going to work but, for your harder cases but, but yeah 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 oh. we, we've got to get the we've got to get the limbic system you know activated and, and people feeling something and and and, and, yeah. and all being you know because that's where we learn um you know and especially uh, i'm assuming those that have got you know entrenched criminal behavior they need to be activated, you know, yeah. at, that, at that very um, emotional level, uh, rather than just, you know, here's another here's another piece of information. Oh yeah, no, totally true. Um, I think there is a third reason, of course, too, which is I think that often people will feel like all of us will feel the need to, to stamp our mark on things. You know, I'm running this program, and I because. More than anywhere else, it seems to me, the whole criminal justice field is replete with pers people's personal lay theories about what would, what would help, right? I mean, if you've been foolish enough to raise at a party that you work with offenders, 
well, you know, you, you've been running a program for people with convictions for rape, so you get all this stuff, right, about what you should be doing with them. And maybe most of that stuff doesn't actually come into treatment. <laughs> but what does come in is a whole lot of people who nevertheless will have their own ideas about what can work. And by and large, we don't want them bringing those ideas into treatment because we, we actually kind of know what works and we need to stay on that path. So that can also be an issue as is people feeling like they haven't got enough autonomy to sort of express their creativity as a therapist. And there are ways of making sure that does happen, actually. But as I say, they still need to be within the bounds of of what we need, the things that need to change. So there are, you know, with really good therapists who are well-trained and well-supervised, we can allow quite a lot of innovation. So, you, you know, you can go in and say, okay, the goals of this week or in the next two weeks is to work on this stuff. But, you know, when, when you get in group, and today there's been, a, you know, some, something went down in the compound last night and everyone's riled up about it, let's use that yes. to do this thing we need to do, right? And so ideally, you can do that. But unfortunately, as I say, if you don't have people who are very skilled, they haven't been trained well and or they're not getting good supervision, then instead what you, you often resort to as a manager wanting to make sure your program's effective is that they have to say, well, I'm sorry that's all happened, you know, but we're on session 36 and in the first 10 minutes of section 36, we have to do this. So let's get on with it, chaps. You know, and it's a structure, yeah, and they just switch off. <clears throat> And, and that's where you lose the responsivity, right? So those programs, and there, are, there have been some egregious examples in countries that I won't mention, um, where, where they've been really bolted down the programs to, to sort of 10-minute blocks. You actually, all you're doing there is addressing risk and need. You're not addressing responsivity because it is so inflexible that you're clearly conveying to your target clientele that you're not able to respond to them at all, really. I mean, you're, you're really limited and how much you can apply this to what they really need right now or, or would engage with, you know. So it can go wrong and, that way. And too. when we look at that from an attachment theory basis, we're going out and saying we're not going to meet your need, right? Yep. So You're you know, used you're, to that, right, because you've got yeah. a dismissive attachment style anyway. So fine, okay, I'm just going to sit here and doodle vodka, you know, labels on my pad all day, yeah, or whatever. That's right, we're just reinforcing the very thing they're already really good at, which is not engaging with people in a meaningful way. Yep. Yeah. It's so interesting to, to, to look at it in, in that space of uh, I was kind of like laughing and chuckling when you were saying, you know, the evidence-based stuff that we, we're trying to go out and, and, and pick up more evidence-based um, uh, as, as being something that government picks up, you know, and, and, you know, psychologists, you know, pride themselves on being, you know, scientists, practitioners, so to, so to speak, and it's all evidence-based. Yeah. But in, in so many different ways, you know, it's hard to get, you know, uh, the world to work in that way, you know, because evidence-based isn't necessarily popular, you know, and could no. potentially get you, you know, kicked out of government as well um, yeah. because, yeah. you know, it's not really, you know, useful to go out and have, I don't know, um, uh, safe injecting rooms or something, uh, if, even if that, you know, has, has been demonstrated as being, you know, effective and I'm not suggesting it has, I haven't read the research, but I'm assuming so. Um, but, well, the you know, harm reduction literature is pretty convincing though. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. generally, <clears throat> ways of reducing you know, harm. Try to put that out there if you're, you're a minister and see, see what happens. You probably won't be around for very long, you know. You, there, no. there, needs to be a, there needs to be in some sense a campaign you know, version of saying, yeah, I'm, I'm, I maybe I am a little bit different, but uh, this is where it's coming from. And how about we educate the, the masses on this actually this stuff actually works and this country's done it yeah. and it works. That yeah. country's done it and it works. You know, we want to be yeah. 
in, an innovator ourselves. Um, and I think, I think um, look, I don't know anything about New Zealand politics, but uh, I know your current <laughs> Prime Minister seems like uh, uh, she's done some pretty amazing, amazing things in how she's yeah. responded um, to, to, to some, you know, uh, incidences and the like, and, and it just sounds wonderful. Hopefully some of that can, uh, you know, sort of uh, transfer across a little bit into, in, into um, you know, uh, our work and, you know, health and, and, and hopefully, you know, within, within uh, high-risk populations as well. Yeah, yeah, no, she's certainly a nice counterpoint to Trump, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, realistically, we've had um, deteriorating sort of increases in poverty and inequality and stuff for a number of years uh, since some pretty massive changes made in the 90s where we really deregulated the country and, and increased inequality between people over time. And so, and have really, although we've got a public health system, it's relatively inaccessible and completely overloaded and all those sorts of things. So there's a lot of work to be done. And so we've got, we've got a really positive government and they've got good attitude, and they, but they started from a really difficult place. And it's also kind of interesting to note over time that some of the best things that have happened in, in some of our systems have been with right-wing governments because it's always that ir- irony, really, that, that some of the things they believe in actually end up being good things uh, and, and, and unexpected things, really. And so an example of... Of this with um, with Bill English was right before the last election he tried to promote boot camps again because the government had decided on the day decided it would try and speak to its base by promoting boot camps and we know boot camps don't work you know there's really extensive good good evidence showing that they're associated with you know no effect in recidivism and good theoretical reasons for why that might be so that here they are promoting boot camps but if you read the fine print there's all these things in them that will actually be rehabilitative you know, like working with their Fano and providing alcohol and drug treatment and education and various, because it's, it's for young people, so various interventions that ought to be addressing these central eight that we were talking about earlier. And so the fine print shows that, that it's got ingredients in it that should be effective, but we're calling it boot camp because that's the political will. Sure. And so you're right, we have this wider issue really with, um, with people essentially, I guess, probably being fear-based in how they vote. And people are scared of offenders and scared of offending. And, and, you know, rightfully so. If you've been a victim, you've got plenty to say about that that should be taken heed of. But our lay ideas sometimes are absolutely work in the wrong direction. They make things worse. And harm reduction is another good example. And interestingly, even as a psychologist and having an interest, I have no, no idea myself, right? You know, we, we need people like yourself and you know, people who are on the ground, um, you know, researchers more, more, more involved, you know, who can hopefully then go out and advise policy um, and some open-minded policymakers to go out and say, we'll do what, what, what it actually says. And, and when we roll it out and it fails, you know, we'll, we'll do the next thing and, and, and see what yeah, works. But if it's evidence-based, at least we're doing something rather than, you know, we'll do something that kind of seems right in our mind um, because, yeah. you know, yeah. that, 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 that's the clumsiest version of, of how to run a country or, or, you know, how to support those who are most in need, you know, and, and that being the whole community when we look at, you know, the, the, the criminal justice system. So, um, but what's next for you? Well, what are you working on at the moment? What, what, what do you oh, a few different things. Well, a few different things. I mean, one of the things I just briefly about the evidence base issue is that is that we need to remember that we need to be generating evidence as well as using it. And so, if we are trying new things, or even if we're trying things in our country that haven't been examined, then 
putting aside money for research is really important, and that tends not to happen. Yes. Because if we're not doing that, then we're not going to keep generating evidence. And actually, some of the areas, the evidence is very thin, and or, you know, with this area that I'm talking about, we've spent, people have spent their whole careers just trying to convince policymakers that interventions can work. And because of that, we haven't done a lot of research on how they work and who they work best with and, and stuff like that. So, for example, we know with people with psychopathy, from one study we know that some of them made a lot more change than others and that, that those who made the most change had outcomes similar to people who were low in psychopathy. So, in other words, the psychopathy no longer matters wow. in terms of the outcomes. Now, now, why is that? Why did some respond and some didn't? They've all got high scores. You know, stuff like that is really important. So I, I, I put in a plug for that because I think we have to remember that if we just do things that are already proven, then we will, um, we will petrify our, our endeavours. They'll just get stuck in stone. And in New Zealand, one of the things that I'm really interested in at the moment, we've got a new corrections policy called Hokairangi. Uh, we've, we're in an age or a, at a stage where more than, than previous attempts, we're uh, c- committed to, to having Māori much more actively involved in, in, in the solutions. Uh, as you know, we have a, a, at least 50% of our prison population is Indigenous New Zealanders. Um, and we have some programs that are effective in reducing recidivism for them, but a lot of those programs don't fully capitalise on the potential that, that could be in traditional Māori uh, culture or in the world of Māori values for, for changing and helping people who have um, Māori identity. So that's a new era. That means that right now uh, the Department of Corrections is restructured and their psychological service, their 120 psychologists who you know, spread out through the whole system doing all sorts of things, comes under the, the Deputy Chief Executive Māori. So this is a new age for us because um, psychology struggles with things Māori. It struggles partly because psychology itself is a, a very Western phenomenon as mm-hmm. we understand mm. I was trained to understand it, right? So, so if you're Māori, you may well not separate off things psychological from other aspects of your being, which will include your land, your extended family and your spirituality, and they're all connected up in these really complex ways. And so I don't see psychologists as having the solutions when it comes to more Māori-based um, interventions. But So our challenge, though, is to bring across the things that should work with everybody into this, into, into what's called Te Ao Māori, the world of Māori, and, and working alongside people who know that world well to create new interventions. And the, the thing about the R&R model is that people have got developed, in some cases anyway, an excessively rigid view of what it is and what you can do underneath that evidence umbrella. But I think there's a lot of potential we haven't unlocked yet because there are a lot of ways of trying to reduce the impact of things like criminal peers, um, altering criminal thinking. Um, there's a lot of different ways of doing these things that we haven't even touched on yet. Yeah. So that's one of the things on my mind. I don't know how involved I will personally be in it, um, but I'm currently involved, luckily, very fortunately for me, a colleague called Armin Tamatea, who's here at the University of Waikato with me, has just got a very large grant to look at prison violence. And a couple of your Australian colleagues are involved as well, key people, uh, are involved and we're all going to look at and try and measure and understand prison violence and then also look at what our interventions to create environments in prison that have higher well-being and enable people to live in a, in a better state of health and well-being and presumably therefore we can see violence as a sign that things are not going well. So that's going to take the next four or five years. We're all going to be involved with that. I'm really looking forward to how that actually, that project pulls on this new Hokairangi policy to 
to bring in some really new ways of thinking, particularly about how to involve Indigenous people in freeing themselves from our criminal justice system. Australia will, will benefit immensely from that as well because we have, uh, I think, a similar problem with, you know, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, you know, communities, uh, people, um, yep. our Indigenous being being overrepresented in, in, in a number of, you know, incarcerations and, and, and you know, there, there's clearly probably, you know, similarities there um, that we don't fully appreciate and understand because, you know, there, there's this, you know, clear, uh, you know, Western, um, you know, lifestyle and, and, and judicial, judicial uh, system and law and everything that, 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 that's, you know, basically been injected into, you know, our first people's um, land and, and we're saying this is how you must conduct yourself yeah. and, yep. um, and yeah, I, I don't know, I know nothing about this world, but uh, I know it's very, very complex and, and, and we need to look at it with fresh eyes, with different eyes, you know, looking at it more so, not, not just from our, our psychologist's eyes, but, um, you know, even in, as you say, the spiritual side or the, you know, the, the meaning behind the connection to the land or the community or, or whatever it is, I'm just rattling some things off and I don't know yeah. any of those yeah. things, but... <laughs> clearly we need we need uh, further conversation and, 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 and actually beyond that, we need to actually start doing, as you say, the evidence base. We've got to start throwing some uh, pilots out there yeah. and putting some yep. money to it and say, what does work? What doesn't work? Um, you know, and we just gather gather more information, but it's got to go from that ground roots sort of uh, space of, of, you know, uh, will to, to put funding behind it um, to see how we yep. can improve this because, you know, there, 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 there's, there's clearly a problem there. Yeah, in fact, um, I think this is still the case, but the world's most imprisoned people are Indigenous Australians. Yeah, I know. Wow. It's, it's a hard nut to crack. I mean, it really is. We are, I mean, the only reason that we are in a position, we're in a, we're in a fairly distinctive position in New Zealand for this work, and it's not because we're special, not particularly not us Parker, huh? Uh, although what is special about New Zealand is it was the last settled country in the world in terms of Western colonisation, um, which means that we have an Indigenous culture which, alarmingly, considering struggles people have, is more intact than is often the case in other parts of the world and also a relatively sophisticated, not by this I mean you know, a culture that was, is quickly able to appreciate some of the ways of capitalising on, on what uh, having settlers more... Um, Western visitors arrive meant for them prior to us trying to uh, exterminate them, of course. But that also, and we're small. It's a small country with a single criminal justice system and a single health system and so on. And so there is a potential to try things here. But in yeah. part, the potential is because Māori have refused to be exterminated, to put it very bluntly, and are coming back. And so they, I mean, they hold the secrets to this. I don't. In fact, yes. as a psychologist, I run out of I run out of ways, as you said, I run out of ways of working with with these things very quickly because my my training and background is, is really limited when it comes to to the core issues. And so, amongst other things, we think that um, because the world of Māori was very hostile to antisocial and criminal behaviour. Um, and in many ways, things like family harm appear to have been, um, some of the worst parts of it were imported by my ancestors. You know, uh, we, we had a long history of, of, of wife beating, for example, in the Western world. 
that would have been considered completely unacceptable to traditional Māori culture and dealt with much more effectively. And so one of the ideas is that there are many ways in which um, psychologists and Māori can work together um, to, to work with offending um, populations. But, but one of the ideas, obviously, if, is if you can inculcate this alternative identity, and I call it alternative because we're often, again, socialising young Māori men and women, to tell Māori when they've never been exposed to it in an intact form because of you know they're living in, in urban cities hooked up with gangs and all sorts of other things going on. But the idea would be if you could actually inculcate them in their traditional uh, culture, then that would help to protect. Because we know from the international persistence literature that people look like they're able to give up crime when they develop a strong alternative identity that's pro-social. And so for Māori, there's a possibility that that is your Māori identity with all of the values and, and systems that go around that. Highly structured, complex society that, um, you know, that there's only pockets of it left, of course, because we're all influenced by the United States and the Western world and getting new sneakers every year and television. And you know, We're all in that world, aren't we, whether we like it or not. But there's a potential, as I say, for, for Māori to really be able to engage. And, and if they can get enough impact on their own people because that's the challenge of again having an intensive enough intervention that you can really build up that alternative positive identity and all of the things that go with it that it will wash out all of these criminal factors that i was talking about before the subs you know the good behaviorists would say substituting a new behaviour for the old is far more effective than just saying to people, stop doing that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> stop doing that thing. Do something else. Well, what else? You know, How should I think? What do I care about? Who am I going to be? You know, those are the fundamental questions that's happening. So that's kind of a very exciting new kind of endeavour that we're on. So much to talk about and uh, so, so time but but uh, I think I think it's incredible to, to, to have you know uh, the likes of yourself and, and your colleagues informing this this world it's you know in some sense sometimes a forgotten world and you know we we, 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 we so easily just label these people you know with one word of you know criminals um, but uh, you know and, and, and that label tends to stick unfortunately you know one's yep. a criminal always a criminal type type scenario yeah, criminal yeah. record that follows you forever and so on and so forth it, 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 it's quite quite a hard sort of space um how can people get in contact uh, with you or how can people help um what 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 um uh, what are your sort of uh, ways to reach you if, if, if people want to collaborate or uh, maybe send some funding your way or something like that? Oh, well, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> well, you can Google me, obviously. I'm at the University of Waikato uh, in Hamilton in New Zealand and um, and I, I, there are not many people with my name, so if you half spell it right, it'll probably come up. I'm on ResearchGate, as, as um, a number of us are, uh, and on Google Scholar. And, uh, yeah, as I say, I'm very happy to hear from people by email so you're happy happy for you to email me and hopefully that's uh that's first name dot last name at uh, waikato.ac.nz very happy to hear from people if you want to get into this field though, i mean i'd love to see people get into this field uh, and when i say field i mean there's lots of different kinds of work around it's not just as psychologists so a, a point that's worth repeating is that the whole system can be underpinned by our understanding of human behavior and really that's where psychology comes into its own so other positions or other kinds of work, you know, like uh, NGO work or, or work as a probation officer or a case manager or a youth worker, all of those places, uh, all of those roles are places where you can implement this kind of understanding of antisocial behaviour and how to change it. 
And so, you know, if you have an interest, stick your nose in and see what it looks like, because I guarantee you it's much more interesting and complicated and, and rich and challenging in a good way in terms of you developing yourself as a person too than you'd expect from the sort of stuff you get exposed to on the outside. So I'm sure wherever you are, whatever community you're in, there are opportunities maybe to, to do some work that's relevant to this. And it, it is, it's hard. The gains are slow. Uh, when they happen, they're very satisfying. <laughs> Professor Palaszczuk, thank you very much. It's been uh, incredibly rewarding for, for me to learn more about this because really being so ignorant in, 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 in this space means that you you just hold these biases and, and, and you know, natural schemas about how it all works and you know it's almost like that party thing you know what we should do we should do this and this and this and that'll work um but uh, yeah, that's right. it's uh you know it's been an absolute um you know pleasure pleasure interviewing you and thank you very much for uh, you know, sharing your expertise and knowledge and look forward to doing it again sometime oh, i appreciate the opportunity really again appreciate what you're doing too uh getting information out there to people and it's been a real pleasure talking to you about something i really care about today um and you've asked some really good incisive kind of insightful questions and kept me on track really well as well so i appreciate that too niche all the best with it likewise look forward to chatting soon if you enjoyed this podcast please support it by going to itunes and putting a review subscribe share it via social media And tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.